Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being the one who loves each and every one of us. You love us more than we can imagine. Your loving kindness is unending. Your compassion and mercy toward us is without measure. And you are so good. I pray, Father, as we seek you in your word tonight, that we would see your goodness, that we would see all that you would want us to. God, let us hear your voice. Let us draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at Saul's disobedience during the issue with the Amalekites. And we talked about all the implications that had that Esther and Mordecai were descendants of Kish. Therefore, they were descendants or at least relatives of Saul. And so God was not only trying to save his people, he was specifically trying to save Saul's relatives. But he disobeyed God. He made excuses for it. He blamed the people for it. And as a result, Samuel announced that the kingdom would be ripped away from him after he ripped Samuel's robe. In that pronouncement by Samuel, God told Saul that he was going to pick someone else, someone better than Saul to be king. And with that, David enters the narrative in chapter 16. I just, I want to go back and touch on that for a second. Just, I was thinking about that. Could you imagine being anointed king over Israel? And the prophet of Israel, because Samuel was the only one we know about at the time, says, you know what, not only are you going to lose the kingdom, God's going to pick a neighbor, someone who is better than you, to take your place. Now we have to, Saul had issues, and we're going to see some of those issues before today's over, but I can't imagine that that set well with Saul. You know, I just, you know, I, I think about it. You know, what if, what if the elders of the church came to me and said, yeah, we're, we're tired of you, you're fired, we're going to hire someone better. I can only imagine I, I would not take that well. Please don't do that. You know, that would, I could, that would just be devastating. And by the end of this week, oh, Saul is on his way out, big time. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, in chapter 16 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So the Lord asking Samuel how long he would mourn for Saul makes a lot more sense for us when we put it in the context of the last couple verses of chapter 15. If you remember, we talked about how Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. One of the possible interpretations of that was, the because the word regretted there doesn't mean regret like we think of it. It means to console or comfort. And so one of the possible interpretations is that God 
regretting making Saul king, he was actually comforting Samuel. It's one way to take that. Well, now we get here. Why are you still mourning for this guy? Right? I've rejected him. It's time for you to move on. So that may be, it may lend itself to that interpretation of chapter 15, verse 34. So God gives Samuel instruction. Now I do find it interesting that all of a sudden, Samuel is afraid that Saul will kill him. God gives him a loophole to take a heifer and make a sacrifice and tells him he's going to show him who's going to be the new king. So after being so bold towards Saul in the last chapter, why is Samuel now afraid of Saul? Because you, you just go back to chapter 15. See, this is why it would have been good to do them together, but that's okay. If you go back to chapter 15, Samuel arrives at the camp. Saul, what have you done? Oh, well, you know, I, I did exactly what I was told. No, you didn't. I hear the lowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. No, well, it was the people who made me do it. He goes, you've disobeyed God. God's taking the kingdom away from you. Samuel goes to leave. Saul rips his rope, and he turns around. God is going to rip the kingdom away from you. Pretty bold. Not concerned at all that Saul is going to do something to harm him. Now God says, you know what? Fill your horn with oil. I'm going to send you to anoint somebody else. And Samuel goes, but what if Saul hears? He's going to kill me. The only thing I could compare it to that I thought was interesting is 1 Kings chapter 18. Right? This is Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. He challenges them. He teases them. He mocks their false god. And when it's time, God answers by fire. He draws his sword and leads the rest of Israel in killing these 450 false prophets. Big day. The next chapter, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill that guy. And he runs. He runs. What's the difference? My only guess is this is a lapse in faith. Because what we fear often shows us where we trust God the least. And don't think that's too profound. I stole that from another pastor. But still, but what we fear often shows us where we trust God the least. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that it's impossible to please God without faith. In Matthew 11.20-24, after Jesus had cursed the fig tree, Peter looks and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever thing you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Romans twelve seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I do like the converse of this. Uh, at the end of... Well, really, each of the Gospels, Peter, fearing man, fearing their opinion of him, denied knowing Jesus Christ. Three times. The rooster crowed, and the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And then Jesus sees him. Simon, do you love me? 
always found it interesting that he called him Simon. He's the one who renamed him Peter. But apparently, he's like, well, you want to go back to your old ways? Fine, we'll go back to your old name. Simon, do you love me more than these? You know I love you. Go feed my sheep. Simon, you love me. You know I love you, Lord. Tend my lambs. Simon, do you love me? And the third time, this is something to the fact that, that Peter was hurt. He was crushed. Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Right? Three denials, three times Jesus asked that question in his restoration. And two, three weeks later, he stands up in front of 3,000. Well, he stands up in front of, we actually don't know the number, thousands of Jewish men and women who were in Jerusalem for the feast who said that the apostles and the disciples were drunk as they spoke in tongues. And he stands up and in front of this crowd, he goes, they're not drunk. This is the promise of Joel. And they're telling you about Jesus. And he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. What? What's the difference? Well, between then, between his denial and his boldness, he received the Holy Spirit. Big, big difference. I love experiences that expand my faith. I love situations that stretch my faith. I love testimonies of others that encourage my faith. But if we really want to grow in our faith, we do so by getting into the Word of God. Because it's there that we can learn from both the victories and the mistakes of those who have come before us. It's there that we get to know the God of the Word. And frankly, the more we know Him, the more we'll trust Him. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Speaking of God. And the Lord said to Samuel, Nope, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's really interesting because of the description of Saul. When Saul was anointed king, what does the Bible tell us? Well, he was head and shoulders above everybody. He was taller than everybody else. He was good looking, right? Basically, he was, he was bigger, stronger, and better looking than everybody else. Well, yeah, of course that's the guy we're going to pick to be king. Not this time. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
are all the young men here? And he said, there remains the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Keep that in mind. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah, which is his hometown. So Samuel shows up, and the people of Bethlehem are worried, right? Samuel's a prophet. He's the priest at the time. Maybe he's come with bad news. Maybe he's come with a pronouncement of judgment against the, you know, the little town of Bethlehem. And they're like, is everything okay? And Samuel was like, yeah, everything's fine. But sanctify yourselves. In other words, they were to cleanse themselves, put on clean clothes, and so on and so forth to prepare for the sacrifice. And then Samuel consecrates Jesse and his sons for the sacrifice. So Samuel aided in their getting prepared. And before the sacrifice, you get this strapping young lad, the oldest of Jesse's sons. We don't know how old he was. And Samuel goes, oh, that's the guy. That's got to be the guy. Look at him. And God goes, nope. You, you, all you're looking at is his outward appearance and his physical stature. But I've refused him. Because the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, God sees differently. This is why the world's opinion of us is meaningless, because God does not judge by the world's standards. This is why we should be concerned with honoring God in our lives and forging our identity in Christ according to who God says we are. Because I'll tell you something. If you spend your life worried about the opinions of other people, worried about what people think of you, you're going to spend your life awfully miserable. Now, I'm not saying you should adopt the attitude of, well, who cares? You suck, right? I mean, I'm not saying that that's how you should treat people. But frankly, the only person whose opinion of you matters is God's. And, and, and if you take that a little bit further, if you're wise, you will keep the number of people whose opinion of you matters to a pretty low number. Because if you start worrying about it, if you start taking every criticism or every, uh, every put down or wh whatever you say, if you start taking all of that personally, or you start trying to form your life and your identity around what you think other people want you to be, oh, you're going to exhaust yourself, you're going to fail, and you're going to miss out on a lot of what God has for you. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That's a mic drop verse. you got to pick one. Am I going to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Or am I going to do my best to be a man pleaser or a woman pleaser at that 
you know, let's be gender inclusive. Right? People pleaser. Which one's it going to be? What it looks like to me from Galatians 1.10 is, well, we get a choice. One or the other. Now, I'm not saying you can never make a mistake or you can never fall or never struggle or whatever, but we either serve him or we don't. And frankly, when it comes to uh, eternity and, and judgment day, your opinion really isn't going to matter. <laughs> Only God's is. So it should be our goal to please him. So after seven of his sons pass by, and you gotta, you got to think about this. I, I just I love the picture that I get. Samuel's there. He's got his horn of oil. First kid comes. Oh, that's got to be him. Nope. Okay. okay. Next kid comes. Maybe this guy. Oh, nope. Okay. Third one. You know, maybe by the fourth or fifth Samuel's like, you're just going to say no to this guy too or what? Till they, and then he finally looks at Jesse. Who's left? You can't tell me this is it. God told me it was one of your kids and it's none of these. And Jesse goes, well, there's the shrimp out in the field. Right? Yeah. Bring me the shrimp. Was like, oh, I don't know how many of you remember this. You're probably too young, and I know my daughter is. But do you guys remember steak and all you could eat shrimp at Sizzler? You remember that? That was back when I could eat shrimp before I got old and my body didn't like it anymore. Um, but yeah, you, you would go, and they were mean because they would they'd bring you, you know, a Sizzler. So it wasn't a good steak, but it was a steak. And they'd bring you French fries, and they'd bring you like six fried shrimp at a time. And so you would just have to order over and over and over and over again. And they'd see me coming, because back then I was really fat, and oh man, they would start to quake. Yeah, but send more shrimp. Send the shrimp. Back in the days of Sizzler. When David arrives, we get this interesting description of him. Ruddy means that he was probably red-haired with a fair complexion, which was different for that area, right? That's not typically how uh, Jewish people look. You know, red hair, freckles, pale, especially not when they spend a lot of time in the sun. And if anybody, you know people with freckles that are fair-skinned, what happens when they spend a lot of time in the sun? They get more freckles. You know, and, and so uh, it does say he was good-looking, and it does say he has beautiful eyes. God says, this is the kid. Samuel walks up, dumps the horn of oil over his head, does this in front of his brothers, does this in front of his fathers. Now, that brings me back, like, to Joseph and his brothers, right? Reuben should have been first in line, but, you know, Jacob didn't care so much about Reuben. He loved Joseph. And he made sure everybody else knew that Joseph was his favorite. Now you have seven big brothers. David's number eight. All seven of them rejected, not just by Samuel, and not even by their dad, but by God. Right? Not like rejected, they're going to hell, but this isn't the guy. And then the shrimp comes in with his red hair and his freckles, smelling like sheep. God says right there. I can picture the look on Eliab's face like, what? Right? And Abinadab, Why? Right? Some one of the, they could they just must have been buggered by this. I it's my imagination. But it says from that moment, 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel goes home. Now, why is that so interesting? Because this is different. In times past, the Spirit of God would only come upon people for a specific time or task. Right? We have talked about that repeatedly as we've gone through the Old Testament. But here, David is given the Spirit perpetually. Now, if you made your way up to Psalm 51, which you don't have to, but it's a good psalm to read. In Psalm 51.11, or all of Psalm 51, David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And in verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, that's meaningful, right? We, as followers of Christ, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. But in the Old Testament, that was still a possibility, a possibility that David knew. And up to that point, the Holy Spirit had not left him because according to verse 13, the Spirit came upon David from that day forward. So when he sinned with Bathsheba, one of the things he was fearful of was leaving the presence of God and having the Spirit of God taken away from him. And that's going to make all the more sense as we read the next section of verses. So thankfully, we have a very different relationship with God through the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant than they did under the Old. Under the Old, God could remove His Spirit. However, under the New Covenant, when God gives us His Spirit, He does not take Him away from us. So we can know that as we follow Christ, we will always be in the presence of God and always empowered by the Spirit of God. In John 3, 32-36, we read, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. And he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now we're going to go back to that, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight little words. God does not give the Spirit by measure. Think about what that means for you and I. That should be very, very exciting. Because there's no time in our lives... Right? Some of you have been walking with Christ longer than I have. I've been walking with Christ longer than a few of you. Um, but it's not like, oh, you, you've been a Christian for 30 years, that's it. You have now reached, the tank is full, that's all the Holy Spirit you get. 50 years, no, not at 50 years, 80 years, 100, I, I don't care how long. Because God does not give the Spirit by measure. He doesn't say, I'm going to put this monumental task in front of you, and here is, you know, a cup and a half of my Holy Spirit. Have fun. No, he pours. And he pours. I once heard a, a pastor describe it as a waterfall filling up a Dixie cup. Right? That Dixie cup not only going to fill up real fast, it is going to constantly overflow with the power of that waterfall. In the New Testament, it's in the book of Ephesians, Paul said, do not be drunk, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, many of us 
we look at that verse and it makes a lot of sense, right? Well, don't get drunk. Be filled with God's spirit. That makes sense. Good advice, right? Put that on the, on the front of the AA, the AA meeting or the CR meeting or whatever. Yeah, don't get drunk. Be filled with the spirit. But what's really fun is when you get into what that word or that phrase, be filled, means. Because that phrase means be being filled. Which is bad English. But it's amazing Greek. Because what it means is constantly being filled. And not just filled, because the word filled means to overflowing. Be being filled. Constantly be filled over and over and over again with the power of God's spirit to the point that you overflow. So when God puts a Goliath in front of you, which we're going to see next week, you don't shrink back. You don't say, no, I, I can't do this. Because you're right, you can't. But what you do is you go, all right, Lord, I need you. I need the power of your spirit. And God's going to go, just going to pour it out. Just going to pour it out. Absolutely love that. I think one of our biggest issues, and I'm not pointing at anybody because I do it too, is that we, we limit God by human, limitation, by human limitations. Don't we? Right? I get tired. I get worn out. I get crabby. I get irritated. I get whiny. Ask my family. Um, I heard my daughter. <laughs> Thank you. True dad. Um, there are days that I don't want to do anything. And if I have to do something, I do it anyway. Because uh, that's what you do when you're an adult. kind of stinks, but it's true. <laughs> right? But I can't put those limitations on God. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't get irritated with us. Okay, well, maybe he does a little bit. Or at least with me <laughs> and Aaron. Uh, but, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't hold back. He never looks at us and says, that's enough. I'm done. I'm not putting up with you anymore. He never does that. And he never places a task in front of us that he is not going to give us not only the ability to tackle, but the wisdom to tackle it his way. We can't put those limitations on God. So we get to verse 14. This is one of the most interesting sections of Scripture. Uh, I'm not saying it's one of my favorites, because I usually tell you when it's one of my favorites. I just think this is really interesting. Verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. I imagine Saul went, Thanks. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered and said, Look, 
I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Yeah, the Lord is with him because he left you, Saul. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him greatly. Now you've got to pay attention there, because that means David loved Saul greatly. It's not the other way around. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please, oh wait, no, what am I doing? And the Lord loved him, or he, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, David would take up a harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now, not too far off in the future, this is going to become a very hazardous task for David. If you remember, Saul would try to, uh, you know, David would play for him when this distressing spirit came, and then Saul would throw a spear at him and try to kill him. Because Saul had issues. Still one of my favorite parts of Dave and the Giant Pickle, though. The VeggieTales episode, you guys remember that? David comes in and he goes, I will fight Goliath. And Saul says, can't you just play your harp and I'll throw things at you? <laughs> one of the greatest lines. That's awesome. All right, back to the word, sorry. So the spirit of God departs from Saul which I think is, is an incredibly sad occurrence. And then a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. The word distressing there means an afflicting servant, a calamitous servant, a servant of misery, or a, a spirit, not a servant, a spirit of misery, or a spirit of grief. And this, of course, troubled him. Does this mean God sent a demon to torment Saul? I don't think so. I think what we see here is the Lord showing Saul what he had lost through this spirit, right? He had lost God's spirit. He was about to lose the kingdom. He was going to be replaced. And all because of Saul's disobedience and his pride. And I think God let this spirit of grief and misery come upon him to show him. Also, we know that God protects his people by his Holy Spirit. And so when God's Spirit left Saul, he was no longer protected. Now, to play the devil's advocate, as it were, I have read and heard several uh, really good pastors and theologians who insist that this is a demonic spirit. I am not convinced that that's correct. I don't think that's, the, I don't think that's proper. But let's just assume for a moment that it is. Right? Let's just pretend that those guys are right and I'm wrong. I know it's highly unlikely. But let's just pretend. What if it was a demon? Does that really a problem? Because even if that's the case, the devil and his followers are still under the sovereignty of God. And they cannot do anything beyond what God allows. This is demonstrated to us in the book of Job. Remember, sons of God appeared before him. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, but you're protecting him. He goes, fine. Take away his house. Take away his wealth. He won't, he won't curse me. He does. Job doesn't curse him. Satan comes back. 
Oh, but it's because you won't let me touch him. God goes, okay, just don't kill him. Right? Satan is bound. He cannot go beyond what God allows. So even if this is a demon, it doesn't really matter. I don't think it is. I think that's a poor interpretation. But it doesn't really matter. The plan. Get a musician. Calm Saul down. David is chosen. And I love this testimony that David has. He's chosen for his skill as a musician. And we talked about this earlier on in the book of 1 Samuel, that back then they didn't have schools the way we do, right? They didn't, you couldn't go to Bible college if you wanted to teach uh, the books of the Bible they had at the time to people. A, you had to be a priest to even have access to them. Um, but what they would do is they would go to schools, they called them the schools of the prophets, and these weren't necessarily like predicting future prophets, but those who foretold, right? They declared God's word. But they would do it by song because that was easier to remember. And so they would learn songs that would recount Israel's history and the great things that God had done, the commandments, the various laws. And they would go around and play these songs in a circuit. There are those who suggest that David had gone to one of those schools at some point. And the fact that he has a testimony of being a skillful musician may lend some credence to that. And the fact that he wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of two-thirds of the Psalms kind of lends uh, some credence to that thought as well. But what else was he known for? He was known for being a mighty man of valor. He was known for being good-looking. And it was known that the Lord was with him. Now, how are those things possible? David hadn't gone to war yet. David hadn't served in the military yet. How was he known as a mighty man of valor? Well, we're going to find out in the next chapter that David was known for killing large beasts that went after his sheep. Lions and bears. Fair enough. No tigers. There are no tigers in Israel. Um, so that's probably how he got the testimony of being a mighty man of valor. Being good looking. Well, if you're good looking, people will see that. But the Lord was with him. How did they know that? Well, the only way they would have known that is if they had, at some point in time, spent time with him. And I love that David's testimony, this is his testimony before he ever became anyone in Israel. Right? So many people get this idea, well, once I'm successful, then I can be the person God wants me to be. Once I reach a certain point in my education, right? I've had to wrestle with that because I know that that, I'm excited, but it doesn't mean anything in the long run. Um, you know, or once I have enough money, then I can serve the Lord. Or once I, if you get that attitude, you'll never do anything. That wasn't David's attitude. He was out taking care of his father's sheep. He did it to the very best of his ability. Samuel anointed him king. But it wasn't time for him to take the throne. So what did he do? He went back out and hung out with the sheep. Remember, Saul started the same way. The difference is Saul continued that way. Or David continued that way. Sorry. He will soon, of course, have a military victory over Goliath. But this was still his reputation. I love Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. Oh, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how handsome you are. If, you're if your reputation is tarnished, it is so hard to fix that. So hard. 
Now David loves Saul because he's a man after God's own heart. Saul will not requite that affection. And David plays for him and becomes his armor bearer. And the verse that came to mind is Proverbs 18, verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. I've always loved that statement. God has given each one of us a gift. And as we grow in that gift, that gift will give us room to grow. And then God will use it to bring us before the people, right? Maybe not a president or a king or something, but to bring it before the people that he wants us to go before. He'll do that. Look at uh, Paul, all the way up to the emperor of the known world at the time. So something I want to note as we close. At this point, David knew he had been anointed king over Israel, but Saul did not. David, in his humility, loved and served the man that he was anointed and chosen to replace. That is a man after God's own heart. You see, God chose to serve us at our worst. This is why Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we will see over and over again Right, David will commit sins. He's going to commit sins that are probably far worse than anything Saul had done. He's going to commit sins far worse than anything we ever did, most likely. Anybody here a murderer? I mean, like actual murderer? Like, you know, just murdered somebody because you did something dumb and were trying to get away with it? Right, we haven't done that. Anybody here cause a plague to come upon your kingdom where, you know, 30,000 people die? I haven't done that. Right? Yet. That's right. Yet. <laughs> right? What's the difference between Saul and David? Right? It's not about how much one or the other sinned. When Saul sinned, he made excuses. He got angry. He blamed others. When David sinned, he repented because his heart was after God's own heart. And when he repented, God forgave him. And being a person after God's own heart does not mean we are sinless or perfect. But it means we are following after him, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness above all else, as Matthew 6.33 tells us to. It also means that when we sin, we repent. And we return to following after God. Both David, and to a much greater degree Jesus, teach us to serve others, even if we or the world thinks they are not worthy of being served. And that can be hard. Because there's times where you don't want to serve somebody. Maybe you don't like them. Maybe they're horrible people. Well, we're all kind of horrible people. But maybe they're a little worse than the average. Or maybe that person has shown outright hostility or hatred towards us. What did Jesus do? To those who showed outright hostility as they nailed him to that cross. He loved them anyway. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. Next week, we're going to see one of the most famous accounts in all of Scripture when David faces off against Goliath. And that's why we're only studying one chapter tonight. As I mentioned at the beginning, I want to take 17 and 18 together. So until then, let's pray. Father, I pray for each and every one of us that you
that you would help us to be men and women after your heart. Father, help us to serve others, even if there are those who say they don't deserve to be served. Help us to love others, even if they have unlovable qualities. Help us to follow you, not because we'll be perfect, not because we'll never make mistakes, but help us to follow you the way David did. That yeah, if we blow it, we repent and we come back. And that we seek you, Lord, with everything we are. Pray that you would be glorified in us the rest of this week. We thank you for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.